0: The Bible spans a recorded history that covers six thousand six hundred years of time, with nearly two thousand years occurring in the New Testament, and slightly over over four thousand occurring, uh, referencing the Old Testament, from God's creation of the world to the last of the minor prophets, Malachi, who concluded his ministry four and a half centuries before the coming of Christ. So there was this period of over four hundred of over four centuries, where God was silent. And some theologians like to refer to this era as the intertestamental period. I do understand what they're saying because there was no revelation from God in this time frame. But that doesn't mean that God wasn't at work or that His silence wasn't part of His work. As we come to the close of the Old Testament revelation, we see God's people who are stuck in their sinful ways. God's wisdom, God's guidance, God's love, His mercy, His grace, and forgiveness were constantly available to them. But more often than not, they chose to do their own thing. They weren't overtly worshiping idols, but they also were not entrusting their lives to God. Malachi points out to us that these people were dishonest in their dealings with God and they were also holding back on their tithes and offerings. Actually, he said that you are robbing from God. Well, Malachi concludes his prophecy speaking about the judgment that was coming for sin and about covenant renewal. And here's what he said in Malachi chapter 4, verses 5 and 6. See, I will send the prophet Elijah to you before the great and dreadful day of the Lord comes. He will turn the hearts of the parents to their children and the hearts of the children to their parents or else I will come and strike the land with total destruction." Then four plus centuries pass. There are no prophecies. There are no promises. There is no revelation. Just silence. And we come to Luke chapter 1. And a priest named Zechariah, who's on his two-week tour of duty for the year at the temple in Jerusalem. And his lot is called, and so he goes in to do the sacrifices and to do uh, the offerings and the incense. And we pick it up in Luke chapter 1, verse 11. Then an angel of the Lord appeared to him standing at the right side of the altar of incense. When Zechariah saw him, he was startled and was gripped with fear. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah. Your prayer has been heard. Your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son. And you are to call him John. He will be a joy and delight to you, and many will rejoice because of his birth. For he will be great in the sight of the Lord. He, will ne- he, will, he is never to take wine or other fermented drink. And he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even before he's born. He will bring back many of the people of Israel to the Lord their God. And he will go on before the Lord in the spirit and the power of Elijah. To turn the hearts of the parents to their children. And the disobedient to the wisdom of the righteous. To make ready a people prepared for the Lord. How remarkable is this? This messenger uh, going before the Lord and the Lord's ministry where family relationships will be restored. Heavenly relationships between a fallen sinful people and their God will be restored. Even when people stop listening to God and God's mission stayed on track. Even though God went silent for four and a half centuries, God's plan continued. And God also wanted us to know that humanity's rebellion against Him would not be allowed to go on forever. The judgment of a holy God upon sin was coming. So our story continues. We flip the page and we come to Luke chapter 2, verses 10 and 11. And it says, But the angel said to them, Do not be afraid. I bring you good news that will cause great joy for all the people. Today in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He is the Messiah, the Lord. Who would have ever thought that a baby born in a stable was making a way for parents' hearts to be changed toward their children and children's hearts to be changed toward their parents? Who would have ever thought that a newborn baby in ancient Bethlehem placed in an animal feeding trough in a manger would make a way to bring healing between each one of us and our Heavenly Father? Jesus didn't just come to this earth to do some miraculous things, to feed the 5,000, to walk on water to restore sight to the blind and to raise His dear friend Lazarus from the dead, Jesus came to die on the cross to pay the penalty for our sin and thus offer to us eternal life. See, this glorious gospel message is the heart and the soul of the Christian faith, which is why the tree of Calvary is is primary over every other tree the Bible says in Galatians 3 chapter 13 uh, which we're going to be looking at more closely later on in this tonight's homily but it says cursed is anyone who is hung upon a tree it's true we don't often think of the cross as a tree but that is. One of the biblical definitions of the cross. This is why the tree of Calvary is primary over every other tree. Because on it, Jesus bore the penalty of the judgment, God's judgment, upon sin. And the importance of the tree of Calvary in God's economy is first realized in the early chapters of the book of Genesis. I want to read for you from Genesis chapter 2, verses 8 and 9. Now the Lord God had planted a garden in the east, in Eden. And there he put the man he had formed. And the Lord God made all kinds of trees grow uh, out of the ground, trees that were pleasing to the eye and good for food. And in the middle of the garden were the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Then moving ahead to verses 15 to 18. The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and take care of it. And the Lord God commanded the man, you are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. When you eat from it, you will certainly die. The Lord God said, it is not good for man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. And as Pastor James just read for us a few moments ago, Satan enticed Eve and Eve then uh, passed along the fruit to Adam and they partook of it and of course sin entered the world. The world became a fallen place to live and uh, as a result God cursed the serpent and the ground and uh, as a result of the fall uh, the woman would experience pain in childbirth and the man would experience painful toil having to live life by the sweat of his brow. So the first tree that we see in Scripture is the tree Of the knowledge of good and evil. Some Bible teachers believe that what we're speaking about today is actually the tale of three trees instead of the tale of two trees. We're talking about the knowledge of good and evil and the tree of Calvary. But some want to suggest that there's a middle tree between the tree of the knowledge of good and evil in the garden and the tree of Calvary. They believe that there is a family tree. Our own family trees where we're sinful from the beginning remember King David in a song of repentance in Psalm chapter 51 where he talks there about his sin that he committed with Bathsheba and he says in you know in in sin my mother conceived me in other words my fallen nature begin from the very beginning the Bible also speaks of the sins of parents being visited upon their offspring unto the third and the fourth generation Yes, the chain of transmission of sin gets handed down to us through our fallen human nature. But all of us are not simply victims because volitionally, we have all sinned. In fact, the Bible says that we've all sinned in Adam. Death will come to all of us because all of us have sinned. Romans 3.23 says, For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And the beginning of Romans 6: 23 says, And the wages of sin is death. Now, I understand why some theologians like the idea of the middle tree, the family tree, because often the same sinful, familial patterns get passed on from generation to generation. As the saying goes, the fruit doesn't fall very far from the tree. Yes, there's no doubt our struggles with sin often find fertile soil in our families of origin. They're often environmental and experiential conditioned responses. Often we see the same sin from generation to generation in particular families. But this is not a nature versus nurture argument here tonight on Good Friday. It is both in nature and in nurture. And it begins ultimately with our fallen nature. As Romans 5.19 states at the beginning, through the disobedience of one man, the many were made sinners. You know, personally, I see no need to separate the family tree with all of its generational sin, family dysfunction, and environmental conditioning from the first tree in the Garden of Eden, which was part and parcel of the fall of humanity. Listen to Isaiah chapter 53. What... The prophet Isaiah said about the Messiah and what the Messiah would do in verses 3 through 11 here. This is speaking about Jesus. He was despised and rejected by mankind. A man of suffering and familiar with pain. Like one from whom people hide their face, faces, he was despised and we held him in low esteem. Surely he took upon our pain and our bore our suffering. Yet we considered him punished by God Yet it was the Lord's will to crush him and cause him to suffer. And though the Lord makes his life an offering for sin, he will see his offspring and prolong his days. And the will of the Lord will prosper in his hand. After he has suffered, he will see the light of life and be satisfied. By his knowledge, my righteous servant will justify many and he will bear their iniquities. Do you hear what this is saying? Jesus willingly took all the sins of every single one of us on the cross. This means that God transferred all of our sin, all of our parents' sin, all of their parents' sin, going all the way back, every single generation, all the way back to the very beginning to Adam and Eve. God transferred as well all the potential future sin onto the blameless life of His Son, Jesus. So grasp this. When Jesus hung dying on the cross, He was forsaken by the Father. You know, few things in life hurt worse than being forsaken by one's father or one's mother. It hurts to experience that kind of judgment. To hear those words of judgment uh, in a person, through a text or from a letter or an email or a phone call, you know, face to face, it, it hurts, it's devastating. And one of the most painful things in life to endure is a loved one turning away from you. When Jesus hung on the cross, dying, God's judgment for sin fell upon Him. The sky turned black. The earth shook. Rocks split. Graves opened up. And the veil and the temple ultimately split in two. And the moment of Jesus' death He cried out, Eloi! Eloi! Lama! Sabachlini, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? What a staggering set of words. The Son who had lived physically for 33 years on earth and all eternity past in glory, in an inseparable bond with God the Father and God the Holy Spirit, was now covered with guilt and shame. Our guilt, our shame. Jesus knew what it was like to be forsaken by God. He knew what it was like to be abandoned and naked and beaten and ridiculed and shamed. He knew what it was like to be mocked and blasphemed, wounded, rejected, and proclaimed guilty. Galatians 3.13 says it all. Cursed is anyone who is hung upon a tree. 2 Corinthians five twenty explains why it happened that way. God made him who knew no sin. To become sin on our behalf that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. Do you understand what all of this is saying? Jesus was forsaken so that we would never have to be forsaken. The Bible says that when we are in Christ Jesus, God says this to us. Never will I leave you. Never will I forsake you. Jesus was cursed so that we could be saved. Jesus was forsaken so that we could be accepted. Jesus bore God's judgment for our sin so that we could be freed from the weight and the shame and guilt of sin. Jesus was crushed for our iniquities on the cross so that our shattered lives could be made whole. Jesus became sin so that we could become the righteousness of God in Him. Jesus was wounded so that we could be healed. You know, the cross represents overwhelmingly God's love for us. We talked about that last Sunday on Palm Sunday. John 3.16 For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son. You know many times in life's harshest and darkest moments the evil one, Satan wants to spread lies in our life like if God truly loved you, these horrible things wouldn't be happening to you in your life. Or if God truly loved you He wouldn't be punishing you like He is right now. Or if God truly loved you, He wouldn't be acting this way because He doesn't seem to care for you right now. Or maybe there's just something wrong with you or perhaps God doesn't exist. Brothers and sisters in Christ, the cross is the indisputable proof of God's love for each and every one of us because it is the place where God gave His very best for us. For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son that whoever would believe in Him would not perish, but would have everlasting life. But God demonstrated His love toward us that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And the one that really gets me is 1 John 4.10. And this is love. Not that we loved God, but that He loved us. And gave His Son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. And all God's people said, Amen.